Hola amigos, que tal? Stuart here from Spain Speaks today with the first podcast that we're going to be doing. Uh, normally I've uh, just been putting out videos about my experiences here in Spain, but I've decided to go into the podcast format and I'm joined today by John, who is another long-term uh, resident here in Spain. 20 years, I think, John, more or less? It is 20 years, 21 years next year. 21 years in Spain. So we're going to be uh, talking about some of our experiences over those 21 years, some of the things that we have done to survive in Spain for uh, such a long time, because it is a long time, right? It's a long time, and it's something that I wasn't expecting to do as well. So uh, I'm not your typical um, tourist uh, or typical Brit that comes over to Spain to live in uh, the hot weather on the coast um, it's, it's a very different story for me so I yeah I've had to adapt to the to the country and adapt to uh, the way of life uh, and also to my surroundings which aren't what I had in the UK so. no completely different I suppose very <laughs> uh, so uh, what uh, what brought you to to Spain in the first place well my career in the UK started off very, very quickly. Uh, by the time I was 21, I was already general manager of a 10-pin bowling centre. So I was extremely young, uh, held the liquor licence in the in the bar and the bowling centre, obviously, as well and everything. So uh, basically, I started off with a quite a stressful life, working a lot of hours, um, uh, seven days a week often. Um, and I had an opportunity after about four years of doing this uh, to go to Mallorca. Uh, work for eight months in Mallorca. I was offered a job there um, and still returned back to the UK with uh, the same job. Uh, in actual, in fact, it would have been a promotion when I got back to a, to a bigger site. Um, but I arrived in Spain. My very first day in Mallorca, I met my now wife. Uh, we got together. Obviously, after six, eight months, you don't know where that's going to lead to in the future. Uh, so I decided to stay on uh, because I'd already fallen in love and uh, she agreed to stay in Mallorca as well uh, for more time and, and it just went from there. And there was no talk of going back to the UK? Uh, we did actually try to go back to the UK after a couple of years. Uh, unfortunately, I chose probably the worst time of the year to go back. Uh, we landed on the 1st of December. Uh, so we went through the worst part of the English uh, winter yeah. plus Christmas with, our, uh, with my wife away from her family and friends and after about four months she's like yeah that's not going to happen so uh, we ended up coming back <laughs> so uh, at the end of the day you were the one who had to make that Christmas sacrifice let's say to to have to go back every year at uh, Christmas time and yeah uh, very much so I mean at the beginning it was impossible uh, I went back when I could yeah uh, we certainly didn't come back at Christmas because we just couldn't afford the flights at Christmas time and mm. and things that they do get extremely expensive around do Christmas. They? Yeah, even, I mean, you still get EasyJet uh, mm. and things, but unless you book it well in advance, mm. um, if you're going around the holiday season, uh, the prices are always going to go up high. Mm. So you know, I wasn't earning a great deal of money when I first got uh, got here, and uh, I couldn't afford to to go to England at Christmas. So we used to go back um, during the bank holiday uh, days at the beginning of December. And we'd go back to England and we'd celebrate Christmas literally for three weeks before Christmas with yeah. all my family mm. uh, and then come back here and have Christmas here. So. Because um, Spain does have those um, public holiday or bank holidays, as you said, at the beginning of December, yes. right? Uh, I think the 6th and 8th of uh, December the, are the bank holidays. Yeah, a couple of holidays. Yeah, that's right. Obviously, a lot of companies also create the what they call the puente, the, yeah. the bridge, uh, which means you often get the 6th, 7th and 8th. Uh, off of work yeah, which yeah. Uh, gives you a good opportunity yeah. to go it's still actually a little bit more expensive uh, to go back to England at that time because a lot of Spanish people also take advantage of, mm. of those dates and travel but uh, it was definitely cheaper than Christmas had you heard of that um, Puente concept before you came to Spain where you have a holiday in the middle of the week <laughs> and you take the Monday and the Tuesday as well or the Thursday and the Friday that was completely new <laughs> to me I had no idea that even existed uh, in the UK uh, when we have a, a bank holiday, it's never actually fixed. We're not normally fixed on a, a specific date. Mm. Uh, so, for example, uh, May Day is the first Monday uh, of May. 
But they but it's always on the Monday. Yeah, they're normally always on a Monday or a Friday, e- exactly. right? Exactly. Right. So we don't have the, the concept of the, the puente. So. No, okay, good. Or the aqueducto, which is the other one that they talk about, with the yeah. longer one. The longer one with a couple of days in between, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. And those are important days here in Spain, those, those that type of holiday, because being a tourist country, everyone you know goes to the coast or they go somewhere, and the tourist in- industry really loves those um, those uh, that type of holiday. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, we live in Madrid now. Uh, I spent three three years in Mallorca first, and I eventually caved and came uh, came to Madrid because my wife's from Madrid, mm. um, and it, I just couldn't believe the bank holidays uh, during uh, Christmas and and the the bigger bank holidays, the puentes as well. In Madrid, it's like an exodus. It's just all of a sudden. The, the whole city empties and everyone disappears to the, the coast for the weekend or to yeah. the the countryside, to the mountains. So it's quite a funny uh, sort of sight to see, really. Yeah, well, it's an exodus every weekend yeah. um, as well, you know, and bank holidays and, uh, and every weekend people just try to escape the city, which uh, probably says something about the city, actually, that, uh, you know, it's a fairly stressful, mon- stressful Monday to Friday. And uh, people just want to get out and go to their uh, village or their town or wherever on the weekends, right? Because, you know, they yeah. live in a flat or a, a little box somewhere in the city and um, they want some space. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a country bumpkin. Uh, I grew up in Stony Stratford in Milton Keynes. And Stony Stratford's a, a very old town, mm. a lot of history. Mm. We've got all countryside, little villages on one side of the town. On the other side of the town, we've got the city of Milton Keynes. So I kind of grew up with the best of both worlds, but I didn't have to live in the city. And Milton Keynes isn't a huge city. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a population of about 300,000. Uh, so it's not a massive city. When I got to Madrid, uh, I've got to admit, I was a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Um, we Just we, too big? Too big for me. Too, busy, uh, too big and too busy. I, hate the, I hated the, the traffic of having to travel in the traffic. Uh, I quite enjoyed the metro, I've got to admit, uh, the underground. Um, the metro system is very good. It's quite new uh, compared to others, especially compared to London. Um, and and I enjoyed traveling, it. I, I do admit. But the leaving your house in the morning, especially I had a flat and I grew up in a house, so I always had a garden. I say I'm with the countryside next door as well. Uh, you know, I, was, I spent most of my youth out near the river, uh, playing football on grass. And here, all of a sudden, it's just all concrete and... Uh, people very, and cars everywhere. Very urban. Yes. Mm. Yes. And uh, where you live now, obviously here, twenty kilometers away from the centre, you're able to find a bit of uh, open space, a bit of, bit of gr- well, not much greenery, but uh, open space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we worked extremely hard for the first uh, few years in Madrid and saved up as much money as we could, um, and eventually, I actually bought a house in a small village. 40 well actually 50 kilometers from the center of madrid um and that was great uh it was a, a detached house in a nice little village of about a thousand people mm. uh, with views across uh, a little valley lots of green uh trees lots of green area around uh, and that was great but it was a little bit too far away and a bit too isolated it's not the same as living in a, a village in the uk so now we live 20 kilometers from the center we're in rivas uh, it's got about a population of about 85,000 people now. and Oh, it's grown a lot. It's grown an awful lot. Uh, mm. But it's still got its parks. It's got uh, the countryside nearby. I've got a little lake nearby where I can uh, go and have a fish or walk the dog. Mm. Uh, and I and I enjoy that. I enjoy being out in the fresh air more yeah, than anything else. Yeah. And I now have a garden as well, yeah, which yeah, makes yeah. life easier. But uh, the Spanish countryside has uh, nothing in common with the... The greenery that you get in um, <clears throat> Stony, for example, not here. Um, if you go to the north, obviously, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Madrid is just. Uh, if you go to the countryside here, it's very uh, it's a desert-like um, countryside. To try and describe it in one way, uh, there's not much grass or small um, plants around. Really, it's mainly trees. Uh, so you, you see a few trees around. They're normally short trees. What I call short trees, really. Uh, whereas if you go to the UK, yeah, you've you got very tall, big, big bushy trees, uh, very uh, green, yeah. lots of greenery around. Uh, it's a very sort of yellow and brown sort of colours uh, most of the summer, which uh, is not what I'm used to. <laughs> no, no. no it's, yeah, it's a very, very dry place here for uh, probably six or seven months of the year. Uh, yeah, so it is uh, a bit of a um, a bit of a, uh, a change from what you're used to. Yeah, uh, for me, the... 
change with well obviously i have the disadvantage that i'm just so far away you know i just can't get back as often as you could i mean you, you know yeah. if you wanted to go back for a weekend you know it's a lot more feasible let's say i mean for me it's almost impossible to do and so for me yeah the first few years were a bit of a, a culture shock as well uh you get used to it you know you 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 work hard and you Monday to Friday goes fairly quickly and then you start mm. to get used to things as well and it's easier when you've got a Spanish partner I suppose to to get some things done for you that you know that you probably wouldn't be able to get done yourself. Yeah, we've got quite a good uh, relationship in that way. We we work very well as a team. Um I'm not very good with the administrative type of uh, things. Uh, in Spain, I speak fluent Spanish now. My grammar's not perfect, but I speak uh, fluent Spanish. Just, just on that, how yeah. long did it take you to? Because did you come here with language skills or not? No, not Spanish. I, I'd learned German uh, at school. I had a, a GCSE in German. Uh, it was a lower uh, sort of grade, if you like. It's not not very fluent. Uh, but I had a, I had the uh, the exam results for that, which uh, I passed. And I'd learned a bit of uh, French as well, but I had no Spanish whatsoever. We didn't have the option of Spanish in England at, the, at that time. Uh, everybody learned French. Mm. And I just got uh, to high school when they started offering other languages. And in my high school, it was German, which is what I took. So I got to Mallorca. Literally, I could count from one to 10 in Spanish <laughs> and order up to one to 10 beers. Uh, that was literally all I knew how to say. Um, and then... I worked with Spanish people uh, the first couple of months, but most of my colleagues um, in the hotel where I worked, they were nearly all Mallorquin. Uh, they have their own dialect there, so they spoke Mallorquin. And all of my customers were British. The, the hotel was 100% British. So I only learned vocabulary, and that was through my wife and uh, her friends when we met um, at night time every now and again, often in very noisy bars. So it was just vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. And then it uh, it sort of hit me hard when I got to Madrid, and uh, that's when I uh, pretty much got fluent and I could speak and understand everything within six months. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, straight into it, it was, as I say you get thrown in the deep end yeah. uh, is literally what happened uh, yeah. I had to work um, I worked in Seoul for the first year and a half you were working in a bar or something was it uh, I started selling tickets for tourist uh, buses in the oh, middle okay. of Seoul um, which actually was very good for me uh, I spoke a lot of Spanish uh, that what I could to the Spanish people uh, I sold a lot of tickets because anyone that heard me uh, speak English was like, oh my God, there's uh, someone who speaks English. And then any Spanish people heard me, they were like, oh, that's really funny. There's uh, an English guy trying to speak Spanish. So it attracted people um, from all over the place and I sold a lot of tickets. Uh, I did do very well there. <laughs> and then I, uh, I I got a job in uh, a pub. I was the landlord uh, or the manager of a pub, for an Irish pub just off of uh, Sol. Uh, I was there for about six months. Yeah, just in case people don't know, Sol is the it's the the bang in the centre of Madrid, right? It's the main tourist area. Yeah, it's actually got the kilometre zero, which is uh, where they uh, measure all of the uh, radial roads that go out from uh, from Madrid to all the other parts of uh, Spain. So every every zero every road there. starts in Sol. Start well the the kilometer distance uh, markings that you yeah. see on the roads start from the kilometer zero. So yeah. obviously the motorways don't finish in Seoul. So you have uh, the A3, for example, uh, goes from Valencia through to uh, Madrid, and when it gets to Madrid, the actual motorway stops at Conde de Casal, mm. uh, but the the kilometer marker is from. Uh, kilometers so, zero and so on. Yeah, so when you see, let's say here, so which is I think we're nineteen or something that's here, correct, are we? Yeah. So that's nineteen from here to Seoul, exactly, which yeah. is the center of Madrid. Let's say, I don't know, I don't think it's the center of Spain. I think the center of Spain is down here in San Cristobal. I think. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. No, it's, it's the center of Madrid, basically. Yeah, center of Madrid. Yeah, yeah that's right. So uh, yeah, so um, an interesting uh, experience. Uh, how would you rate your uh, your um, career, your well, if you can call it a career, your work experience, your time working in Spain. It's it's been a, a bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. Um, at the beginning, I just took whatever jobs I could. So I say I was on the tourist bus tickets. The I was uh, managing a pub, um, and then out of pure chance, uh, I was asked to help a company. It was a British company. Uh, that had started selling products in Spain uh, to gymnasiums. Uh, it was all audio and visual equipment. 
and they needed someone who could speak Spanish in, in the center and move around Spain. And it just so happened that they found me, uh, offered me a job and I started working for them. Unfortunately, that company actually went bust two years later in the UK, which meant the, the Spanish uh, section had to close as well. Uh, but through the contacts I got from, from the work there, I was offered jobs with companies like Life Fitness, um, um, we've got Precore, uh, Technogym, not so much, but a few other big companies that deal with the gym equipment. Uh, they offered me some self-employed work, uh, fixing machines and uh, um, putting machines together when they sold new machines to new gyms. And that was, uh, it was very good for a couple of years, but it was self-employed. So I could be earning or invoicing 3,000 euros uh, in December, and then you get to July and August, everything just dies. And I was actually paying uh, more money out in July and August than what I was receiving. Yeah. Uh, because I had uh, no work, but I still had to pay the, the self-employed uh, rate Oh, you were, on, you were on that self-employed scheme back yeah, then as well exactly so, so. so i was paying 300 euros per month uh, mm. to be self-employed no. but in spain it doesn't matter whether you've earned any money or not you no. still have to pay that money mm. uh so it, it cost me a lot of money and i still had and i couldn't <clears throat> stop being self-employed for a couple of months because i still had a few bits and pieces going on yeah actually that, that's one of the biggest complaints people have about that system that even when you're not working so if you do get a couple of months where there is no work and even when you teach english which which is what you know we do now you as well um those months where things do drop off because in july and august things do drop off i yes. mean people's mentality changes completely here as soon as the weather starts to warm up you know they're just not thinking about work or no, education or anything you know they're all they're thinking about it. they go into holiday mode yeah and uh you have to keep on well you don't have to keep on paying it but but uh to go on and off is a bit of an inconvenience and you still have to pay that 280 or something or 300 or whatever it is that we pay yeah it's it's a difficult situation this year i changed a little bit what i did um i work from september until may with fixed classes. So I have classes actually uh, done from my house. Mm. Um, all self-employed, so obviously I can give invoices to everyone, etc. and I obviously have to pay all the taxes and everything. Um, and then basically what happens in June, uh, in Spain, the, the schools have a shorter timetable. They actually finish uh, around about one o'clock, quarter to one. Yeah, like a summer timetable. Yeah, and and obviously that disrupts the the children's routine that, and the that, parents. But that's routine. only if the kids don't have lunch at school. Well, even if the kids have lunch at school, they still finish at three. Whereas normally they'd be leaving the school at four four thirty. So what happens is is the classes that would normally start from, uh, and have been starting from May till uh, from uh, September till May. When they fin uh, finish the school earlier, but they have their English classes at 4.30, they've got this gap. Uh, and that gap of an hour and a half, two hours, uh, isn't always what the, the, uh, the parents want. Mm. So in June, I probably have maybe, if I'm lucky, 15% of my classes. 15%? Yes, 15%. Mm. It goes from 24 classes down to about three or four. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very low. So it makes it makes life very difficult uh, for the summer. You have to think about the summer. You have to save uh, money every month to cover your um, your summer period. Um, and then in July and August, I have nothing at all. There's no work at all in July and August. There's no classes. So I actually come off of the self-employed scheme this year um, during those two months, um, and. It's fine. Uh, it wasn't a big issue. I used a gestoria, like a, an accountants type uh, um, administration firm, uh, and they did the the work for me. But you're not paying into the system for those two months as well, which also affects your retirement uh, and your pension uh, later in life. So it's not something that I want to continue to do. Uh, I would like to be able to earn enough money uh, so that I can still keep paying into the system in in July and August, even mm. though I'm not earning any money, mm. and not have that issue in the in future life. Yeah, because as you said, your uh, your pension is uh, dependent on that, right? Yes, exactly. Mm. And if you don't pay in, you don't get out. So um, yeah, so it's been an interesting uh, 21 years, let's say. The the experience in general, John, more positive than negative. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, I love the Spanish people. Uh, I love their their concept of uh, 
family, the family life. Um, there's a lot of very good positives uh, that come out of Spain. Um, I, I couldn't honestly tell you if it's a better place to live than in the UK or if the UK is a better place to live than here. There's so many pros and cons uh, and they're so different to the two countries um, that you really have to live the experience to see and it depends on the sort of things you like, the sort of life you have, your family, to whether it's a, a benefit to you or a, a negative. And to me, it's been both. Yeah. So you've had your ups and downs. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody goes through those uh, those uh, ups and downs, uh, especially. I mean, I, I always say that you can have the same experience as living at home. You know, some yes. some days you're good, some days you're bad. You know, some days the UK or England's the best country in the world. Some some days it's it's the worst. You know, and uh, the same thing happens here. But of course, you know, um, when you're living in a foreign country, sometimes you can look for that foreign country excuse do you know what i mean yes, to, exactly. to blame everything on the country or or the lack of opportunity sometimes you can also put it down to that but i agree with you that in general you know it's it's been a fairly uh, positive experience otherwise we wouldn't have been here for so long i i, I suppose but uh how do you as a as an englishman here how are you treated by the spanish you said that you know the spanish are great people have a good time etc you, you feel that they treat you okay or do you get some of the typical stereotypes pop up every now and again <laughs> um i mean in general the spanish people treat me really well um most of the time i mean because i speak fluent spanish they don't really treat me any different to anyone else um yeah we the stereotype uh, does grind on me a bit sometimes um they see you as British and automatically, oh, you must be, you must love beer, you must be a bit of a hooligan. And, and <laughs> I think they get a very, very bad concept of uh, the normal British people because of the, the tourism in Spain. And I find that as a, a horrible stereotype because if you imagine the amount of tourists that come over from the UK, you're talking millions of people every year. How many of those are actually bad people, bad tourists, the ones that get... Uh, blind drunk all the time um, it's not that great a percentage and when you look at the the problem with some tourism in the uh, in Spain from the UK tourists they're normally focused on certain areas um, one fantastic example which I lived and saw uh, personally was Magaluf in Mallorca oh, yeah. uh, absolute dive um, of a place when it was full of uh, British tourists absolutely beautiful uh, place surroundings everything when it wasn't full of tourists but doesn't doesn't a place like Magaluf don't they deliberately attract that type of tourist though with cheap alcohol um, cheap hotels cheap food precisely uh, this is the this is the thing um, and, and and the owners of those restaurants a lot of the times and bars this this Spanish businessmen it's a big mix actually is it? Um, Magaluf is a big mix but this is where I see two problems here um, the first problem the the whole of Magaluf was sold uh, as a cheap drinking experience basically so what did it attract did it attract families no it wasn't so many families what it was was a whole ton of really young people uh, 18 the 18 to 30 range which is what they sell it to but mainly 18 to 20 24 year olds well a lot of these people they're going to, on their very first holidays they've just started drinking uh, they're not used to drinking in great amounts and then all of a sudden they're sold a holiday which no word of a lie you could buy for 150 pounds for a week's all-inclusive holiday 150 150 for a week for a week all-inclusive yes okay. i mean just uh just three years ago i was looking to go to mallorca to visit friends because we still have friends in mallorca and we were trying to get uh, a package deal or even just flights and then a hotel from from madrid and it was cheaper from the uk and I found it so ridiculously much cheaper. We actually found uh, uh, the cheapest holiday we could find was around about 700 euros per person from Madrid. And that was the cheapest at the time. And that, that was also all inclusive? Yeah, and it was in the summer. It was, uh, actually, uh, that might have been uh, half board actually. Okay. Um, and it was, in the, it was in the summer. It was in the main uh, summer period. But looking at the UK, I actually found it was cheaper for me to get an EasyJet flight back to the UK 
and then buy a package deal from the UK to Mallorca. The, uh, the the cost from Madrid to Mallorca was three was, times, four times more expensive. Exactly. Uh, it was going to cost me about £245, so it was about maybe at the time, uh, maybe about 275 to 300 euros uh, per person hmm. um, from the UK with the children free. The children uh, from free. From the UK because they were under 12, there was an offer with the children free. Now, all of these come from uh, the deals that the Spanish hotels had made with the tour agents in the UK. Yeah. So where, it, uh, where the problem arises, the Spanish hotel sells the whole uh, hotel uh, to, the Spa- uh, to the UK agent. And the UK agent obviously gets a really good price because they, they buy all the rooms for the whole season. Then they sell the hotel at the price they want to. But when it gets closer to the summer season, if they see that they've still got quite a lot of rooms left, they start reducing the price. Um, and that obviously makes it a lot cheaper for people to go last minute. Then when you get to the resorts, all you find are really cheap uh, bars, pound a pint or a euro a pint for a beer. How much do you pay for a pint of beer in Madrid? If you go to the bars or the um, uh, the Irish pubs, for example, in the centre of Madrid, the cheapest you'll find a pint of beer would be around about five euros. Okay. So you can imagine the difference. It's, yeah. it's a big difference. That's and a huge but five difference. euros is around about the right, the same price as what I'm paying for a pint of beer back in my town. Yeah. Uh, so it's no different to the UK price. But, but here for a pound, you can get a pint. In Mallorca, pound for a pint. Yeah, I think Benny Dorm's the same. Yeah, and it's and. And it's not all uh, owned by UK, uh, well, British people. Uh, there's a very big mix. In fact, uh, one of the uh, places I used to uh, frequent a lot uh, when I was working there, they were all owned by Spanish people, the ones that I, were, I was visiting. Um, then you have some that have been uh, sold to English people. And this comes to my second point of the problem. The second problem you've got is the amount of property, the amount of businesses that the Spanish government have allowed to be sold to foreign people. So when you say foreign people, you mean? Anyone from UK, Russian, German. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean... Um, so, not, so not only European Union, but also... Yeah, there's a lot of uh, Russian-owned uh, properties in um, uh, in Mallorca as well. They may have uh, passports, uh, European passports, I don't know, but I know people that are Russian that own businesses in, mm-hmm. in Mallorca as well. And that, I think, is a big problem. So a massive sellout, basically. Exactly. Mm. You're, you're selling your country, basically, to, to other nationalities, which is all well and good at the beginning. You're receiving an enormous amount of money coming from other parts of Europe. Uh, there's a big boom. More things get built. But at some point, everything stops. Mm. And all of a sudden, a lot of these businesses and uh, a lot of these bars, ho- even hotels now as well, uh, owned by uh, people from the UK, from Germany. And obviously that then becomes very difficult to control ha- which type of tourists you're bringing over. And if they're making money from the worst of the worst by bringing over drunks and people that just want to go over and drink and get stupid because mm. they don't care what their accommodation is like, etc., mm. they're going to carry on doing it. Mm. Um, Magaluf has taken a turnaround. It's actually improved. Um, the council have wised up to the problem and it has improved a lot. So there is a way around it and Benidorm needs to start doing the same thing, I think. Yeah, um, there's a lot of bad press um, here in Spain about especially the Brits. Uh, and uh, every now and again, a couple of things pop up which uh, really uh, get under the uh, the Spanish skin, let's say. There was one a couple of uh, months ago, or maybe at the beginning of August, I'm not sure, where uh, some, a, a homeless guy in Benidorm had his uh, forehead tattooed. Did you hear about that? Yeah, I read that article. Uh, disgusting. I mean, absolutely disgraceful from the people that did it. But again, you're going to get stupid people everywhere. Yeah. So, but uh, this is bad behaviour. Obviously, I'm not going to. I'm not going to uh, condone that behaviour. But the um, the tattoo artist should he have um, perhaps said, uh, lads, uh, come on, we, uh, you know, I think one of the problems also is that guy, the homeless guy, already had a tattoo on his forehead anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously they took advantage of a homeless guy. 
uh, which they shouldn't have done in well, the first place, a, a whether couple, they had a tattoo or not. They gave him a couple of hundred pounds or something. Yeah, it? I think it was a hundred. I don't think, was, don't think it was that much. I think it was a hundred euros or something they gave oh. him, um, which is nothing. Oh. But to a homeless guy, it's a lot. Oh. Um, and well, it doesn't really matter if he's already got a tattoo on his head or not. When oh. they, they were still abusing this this homeless guy. But yeah, the I, tattoo artist, oh. I think, is just as much to blame yeah. as the people that were paying for it. Well, I can see here it says ninety pounds to have groom's name on forehead. Oh, forward, yeah. So, uh, no, you're right. Jamie, Jamie Blake, North Shields, NE28. That's what he wanted to to put on the guy's head. So, yeah, they probably thought it was a bit of a laugh at the time. Uh, yeah. Drugs, uh, probably a few illegal substances had been consumed as well, I presume. I would imagine so. There's I plenty know. of them in Benidorm. <laughs> yeah, well, there's plenty of them in Spain in general. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's obviously uh, something that, you know, highlights the um that uh, uh see i always get the impression because obviously coming from australia you don't get the same uh you know there's not the same uh history that the that uh, britain and spain have but i do get the feeling sometimes that the spanish press and the british press also can be a little bit anti-spanish and the spanish press can mm. also be a little bit anti-british and yes. and when these things pop up they uh, they really get highlighted they take advantage of it and and it saddens me because, uh, as I say, I've, I've never had any sort of ill feeling towards any nationality, really. Mm. Uh, I mean, in 2001, I founded a cricket club here in, uh, in Madrid. The very first, uh, it actually was the very first cricket club in um, in Spain years mm. and years and years ago. And I helped resurrect it in 2001. And we've got 14 different nationalities in our club. Um, 14 14 yes really? it's, uh, it's crazy uh, right, from so. afghanis to indians and uh, british people obviously all the way through to german american south african uh, everywhere we've we've just had an an enormous amount of uh, nationalities even argentinian and they don't even play uh, cricket in argentina so <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's it's a huge eye opener for some people. They they get to the club and all of a sudden they they're able to connect and speak and learn about other cultures, uh, to to these people. Um, and I think it's a fantastic thing to do. And it really saddens me when uh, two countries get this little niggling problem and they anything they can do they just jump on the mm. uh, the back of the other one. And obviously, I think. A lot of the problems stem from uh, history and still from Gibraltar. Uh, yeah, Gibraltar yeah, is yeah. obviously an issue there. Well, obviously, you've um, you've uh, with, on that cricket aspect. Um, uh, it hasn't been easy to convince people here in Madrid, at least, about the validity of cricket as a sport. Right to get facilities and a ground, even and. Virtually impossible, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, cricket is just unknown in Spain, really. Uh, you say you play cricket and people think you play polo or they think you play croquet. And you think, yeah, that's not because, quite the same. No, because, yeah, see, uh, I've seen here, where we live here in uh, Rivas, there's badminton clubs, there's softball, there's baseball, American there's even football. American football. Yeah. And, you know, all of these other sports have been given facilities and, 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 and a ground to play but uh cricket seems to hit a brick wall yeah i mean there's, there's at, at least in here i mean it's probably different you know down in the on the coast it's easier because of the expats well there's uh, so many of them or yeah. the immigrant population um but uh, and that's another subject that we can quite easily discuss <laughs> the uh, difference between expat and immigrants uh if, is there one uh, but no the, the the population of the immigrants on the coast is obviously uh it makes things easier to to do uh, down on the coast and it also brings in a lot of tourism as well and that's the hard thing to sell to to the madrid council the the councils here in different areas we actually haven't asked for any money from anyone here in madrid yet um and we're not planning on uh, doing either uh, we haven't asked for anything for free either uh, we have asked for a piece of land to use to rent to pay money uh, to use this ground and we will actually pay to to build the grounds uh, mm. uh, to the specifications of a cricket ground. Uh, how can we do this? Well, a lot of our members aren't very rich at all. In fact, we we actually uh, have a, quite a few number, uh, well, quite a large number of uh, students. We also have two refugees <laughs> from uh, Afghanistan. Uh, who we sponsor, so we we pay their match fees, we pay their membership, uh, we buy their whites, the the clothes that we use to play cricket. 
um, because we want to promote the sport here and we want to help as, as, as much as we can. How do we raise the money? We have a tournament every year. Uh, where do we have the tournament? Not in Madrid because we don't have a ground. Yeah. So we literally have to organize uh, an international tournament in La Manga every year and the money we raise from that tournament half of the money goes towards or a percentage of the money goes towards Madrid CC and a percentage goes towards the, the charity of choice La Manga, La Manga being in uh, Murcia that's right yeah on the coast uh, in Murcia so we've been doing that for 12 years now um, and you raise a few thousand euros every year and we've managed to save uh, 30,000 euros for, for our ground but even with this um, we're explaining to the councils that having a cricket ground would actually bring cricket teams over from uh, all over Europe to play here. So you're filling hotels, you're using restaurants, uh, more tourism in the centre as well. We're paying for the ground, we're paying rent, uh, we're developing the ground. Even with all this information, it's still becoming impossible. The reason. Uh, one, I think it's uh, a doubt uh, that what we're saying is actually true. Uh, although we can show what other cricket clubs have done, I think that's part of it. Uh, lack of knowledge of what the sport actually is. And if you look at cricket, it's actually the second biggest sport in the world uh, when you look at viewing numbers. Um, not sure about playing numbers, but definitely viewing numbers. Because of India. Because of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, the, uh, the ex-colonies of the UK uh, obviously have large populations. Uh, but it's played all over the world, but just in specific areas. And it's played in West Indies, South Africa, mm. uh, New mm. Zealand, Australia as well, of course, mm. as well as the uh, the other Asian countries that we just mentioned. Um, and now it's growing in Europe. Uh, you're getting some quite strong teams coming out of Ireland, uh, Holland, uh, even Germany now is uh, uh, getting a good team together. So it's hard for them to to really understand a sport that's not played in their country hardly at all. When we started the club up in 2001, there were eight clubs in the whole of Spain, uh, us being one of those eight. Uh, when we finished the league last year, I believe we had 110 clubs. I mean, it's, it's improved enormously. And it's improved enormously in Barcelona, well, in Catalonia. The Catalonian government have realised the potential um, of cricket. Yeah, because of the, I'll just uh, yeah. say, because of the Indian population India and Pakistan there's not many population. Catalans playing I suppose um, they've got few, they've got some playing uh, one of our ex-members is playing in a club there and he's got a few people playing there that uh, are Spanish um, but no it's just it's very difficult to promote cricket to anyone but, um, until you've got the facilities to do so so now the Catalonia government have given uh, facilities or provided facilities for those clubs they're actually uh, growing faster they're getting more publicity um, and they're getting them out there. In Madrid, it's very difficult to do so. Now, we'll just move on to another topic here quickly, which is obviously the Brexit situation. A lot of the, <laughs> uh, a lot of the press at the moment we can see here, uh, Brexit exodus, thousands of British expats living in Spain return to the UK. Uh, expat exodus from Spain, thousands of Brits quit and Brexit fears, etc., etc. Um, I don't want to really, you know, go into why Brexit happened. Obviously, there's a lot of different thought on the subject. But how how is Brexit going to affect you, John, as uh, an English person living here in Spain? Um, I think, to be honest, I think it's a very hard question to actually answer. I don't think anyone really knows how it's going to affect us at the moment. This is the point. So it's been nearly two years. Yeah. And what do we know? Virtually nothing. <laughs> uh, we we know for a fact now that a lot of the the campaigning with regards to Brexit was a lot of scaremongering. Um, there were a lot of lies told by both sides mm. as well. Mm. Um, and I, I honestly believe that we've made the wrong decision in leaving. Uh, I didn't get a vote because I've been here for fifteen years, uh, more than fifteen years. At the time of the vote, I wasn't allowed to vote. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but if I had voted, I would have voted remain. Obviously, uh, I think it's the logical choice to stay in Europe. Um, however, although I felt that remain was the the correct decision, um, and it and obviously I was very disappointed with the the leave vote. I do understand the people that voted leave. Um, for various reasons. One, some of the people that voted leave 
did so because they were scared. They were told a lot of lies, a lot of scaremongering by the Leave campaign, and I think a lot of people actually were scared, and they uh, they voted Leave for that reason. Another reason we've we've obviously uh, always been a very different country compared to other parts of Europe. Uh, we're separated by water; it's an island. Uh, we've grown through the years and uh, evolved through the years on an island so we're still driving on the left hand side of the road uh, we're still using our own current currency etc and the reason for that is is because of experience in um, uh, in the UK what older people have experienced with the change of decimalization uh, so I do understand why a lot of people wanted to, to leave they also believe that uh, we'll have more control over uh, things such as immigration which people have said have become a problem in the UK now. However, I think that's more of a, a government policy rather than uh, anything to do with Europe. Um, and that's, that's been you know, the, the, main, the main thing that people have been looking at. Immigration, um, the scaremongering, I think all of that has really put pressure on uh, people to vote leave. Mm. So I, I do understand it, but I'm very disappointed. And you hear a lot of... Um I suppose it is scaremongering now. I mean, every day you can read in the papers here that driver's licenses could be affected. Um, obviously, the residency situation, if there's no agreements, there's a couple of YouTube channels there that are also talking about the uh, the importing, the exporting of goods into the UK, the travel issues as well. All of those things, I mean, but as you said, no, nobody seems to know exactly what's going to happen. And we're not, you're not really getting any clear messages, are you, from either the Spanish government or the, the British government as to no. as to whatever. As clear as mud, basically. No. Uh, um, so the situation before, just let me try to get this clear because I saw a video here on YouTube and it was a woman. I've got it here and uh, I'll just see if I can find it. It says, how I got residency in Spain as a freelancer. Now this uh, lady apparently, I didn't watch all of the video, all of the video, but she said that she managed to get residency in Spain. She showed her little uh, piece of paper that she has here and she said that she had to have 7,000 uh, pounds in her bank account and uh, she's a freelancer or something. Now I understood that the European Union, mm. you can work, you can come and live here without having to go through that process exactly i don't really understand what she's talking about there to be honest um i came to spain uh with a thousand euros uh in my pocket yeah so maybe it's changed in those 20 years <laughs> obviously I, I, yes. I, i'm not sure but i what i understand that the european union is that if you want to go and live in another country uh you can do it so here she says that she had to hire a lawyer so she also had to have that money in her bank account so uh, obviously it's not that easy to move around the European Union if you listen to what Anna Glowinski uh, says. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. I mean, I've, I've heard stories of people that are coming here to live um, as retirees. Mm. Uh, people are retired, they come here to live, and they, yes, uh, I understand that they do have to have uh, uh, at least a minimum amount of money in the bank mm. uh, to help support themselves. Um, they have to go through a, a process to get residency here as well. Mm. Uh, and that you can understand because they're not going to become a part of the working population. Mm. They're not going to be paying taxes here uh, because they're not working and things. So you can understand that there's there's a process to that. But I was under the impression that the younger people, if they came here to work, they could get residency uh, with the complete freedom of movement throughout Europe, uh, as yeah. can people going from... Spain to the UK. Yeah, that's what I thought. But uh, apparently uh, her situation is that she's not going to be working in Spain. She's going to be getting her income from the UK, but she wants to live in Spain. Well, that then goes back to the the point I made before about the people that are coming here as retirees. That's the because same situation. Because if she's not working here, she's not paying any tax. Yeah. She's paying tax in the UK. But I also was under the impression that if you did come here to live and you got residency here and you were working for a, a American, company yeah. in the UK or anywhere States, else, whatever. you had to then uh, start paying tax over here. I think uh, within the six months, the, uh, things change. I'm not really up to date with all these things yeah. because it doesn't affect me. Yeah, but. no, it doesn't really affect me either. So that's the point. So if you reside in Spain for 183 days, 
That's it, yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're in, where your income comes from, no. you've got to pay tax here, right? Yes. So that's why I didn't really understand what her story was. I'll probably have a look at the whole video. I mean, we'll just have a look here in a minute and see what she says. It's about how I managed to get my residency here in Spain as a self-employed person. So there's one way of doing it, which is by getting a job. Now that changes depending whether you're from the EU or not. Um, and there's the other way of doing it, which is how I've done it. I've lucked in by still doing it before Brexit and I was really focused on making sure that I got it done because nobody knows what's going to happen next. There probably wasn't too much of a pressure for me to need to have it because I go back and forth between England and Spain so much. I didn't really need to be a resident here at first but because the climate is so changing and we don't really know what's going to happen and because I also want to legally marry my boyfriend over here then um, then it was a really, really useful and important thing to do. Here's what you need to know. You need your passport, a lawyer, and a place to live, and 7,000 pounds in your bank. So as I fully understand it is that I, I still pay my taxes to the UK because this is where I earn my money. What do you think the government- So that's the point she pays a tax in the uk but if you live those 183 days in spain which i presume she's going to do she's going to have to pay tax here yeah i mean people i think people are, are actually taking the mickey when it comes down to uh, living in spain in many respects you cannot expect to come to spain enjoy life in spain living in spain but earning money in the uk and paying taxes in the uk because if you're living in Spain, obviously, you, if you don't pay taxes, you're not contributing towards uh, road uh, care. Rubbish collection. Uh, rubbish collect well, rubbish collection normally gets paid through the local, tax the local course, taxes. Yeah. But, yeah. but school, other yeah. things, schooling, education, things, health system, everything. So if, you, you know, if, you're, if you're not living in, the UK, uh, living in the UK and you're living in Spain and you're paying taxes in the UK, you're basically cheating the Spanish uh, people, hmm. uh, which is wrong. And... And I completely understand why Spanish people will get upset about that uh, completely. Let's see. We'll just watch a little bit more and see what she says. Here once is just to simply know that you're not going to come here, become a resident, suddenly become a burden to them. So they want to know that you are able to support yourself financially. And obviously, if they're not giving you any jobs, you need to provide, you need to provide your own evidence of that. First things first. Um, I got a lawyer. I, if you want to find out who I use, she's in Malaga, um, send me a message and I'm happy to send you her details. She does only speak Spanish though, so it might be worth looking, doing some Google searching into someone who specialises in residencies um, who speaks English. And I've known people to get their residency in three weeks. It took me five months. <laughs> Five months to get your residency, I, I don't know. See, uh, like I said, I, I had to go through a completely different process coming from Australia and I don't have that, that European uh, advantage. But uh, it seems a little bit strange. It could be the case. I, 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 I don't Five know. Five months here in Madrid, I would imagine is probably quite normal because you have to go through all the paperwork process and everything. Um, so, I mean, it could take that long. But, I mean, so, so many things she just said there which I just made me laugh because... Is exactly what's wrong with this type of situation. First of all, um, you know they're not giving us jobs. So, well, no, you don't. They don't give you jobs. You have to go and get a job. You know, mm. it's it's like you know. I think the the youth of of today have got to a point where it's like uh, the self entitlement. I'm entitled to this. You're not. You work for it. You have to work for it. You know that's ridiculous. And then the second point. When she, when she says, uh, "Oh, yeah, the the lawyer only speaks Spanish," you know, so I'll, I'll I mean, uh, there's of course she's Spanish. She lives in Spain. If you're going to come and reside in a country, the two things: either one, you get here and then you learn the language, and you're while you're here, you start learning the language. But if you if you're going to come here and you know you're going to live here, you should be learning the language mm. you should know make an effort make an effort mm. i mean it's such a problem on the coast because people come here they go to little british areas um and they don't learn any spanish no, no. but they're living in spain and they're probably a little bit alienated yeah 
Now let's just see what else she says here, just quickly. Don't know. Yeah, you probably could. But you either need to own a house or show that you're renting and basically show that you're not homeless. So I imagine it would be pretty hard if you're doing the whole van life thing to get residency here. So I brought my contract with me and I bought my passport and I registered myself for an empadramiento. And that's basically just telling the local town of Torremolinos that I am living here with you in your town. So it's a little bit complicated from what I can work out here with the uh, empadronamiento, which is a difficult word to say, let's be honest. But uh, yeah, so this is the, the type of stuff that we're going to be seeing all the time. Yeah. Um, because uh, Spain is still going to be a desired destination for British people, yeah. let's be honest. I mean, there, there's things here that you can't get in the UK, like the good weather, for example, and especially in Malaga. Yeah. So they're gonna, people are going to be coming here. So, you know, this type of video here, and she could be right. I mean, I have no idea how the system works, but it seems complicated that you have to go through all of this, theoretically still being part of the European Union, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well, Spain's always been a bureaucratic nightmare, no matter whether you're English or Spanish. Yeah, but, but we just saw a homeless guy from Norway or somewhere. I don't think he'd have a residency, right? But no. he's, he's living in Spain, obviously, yeah. as a Europe, Norway European Union. I don't think it is. But he's come down, <laughs> but he's come down here and he's living there, or Swedish, wherever he was from. And, um, you know, so, I mean, there's just so much information. It's just so complicated to, to, to work out what's going on. Yeah, you really need to, uh, to pay a lawyer to, to get get all this done or gestoria I mean uh, depending on what you're actually doing um, but again it's, it's it's this the whole concept that people have uh, have of this exodus of people leaving because of Brexit uh, and why people come to Spain Spain, Spain is a tourist destination uh, the coast of Spain is extremely popular with a lot of European countries not just the UK but extremely popular with the UK yes and it's going to continue being so. I mean, I don't think there's going to be much changing because of Brexit in that sense. Oh. However, the reason that we've got so many people coming to live in the UK is because of the amount of UK tourists. It's not just, oh, I want to live in the beach. People see an opportunity to open a business which is something that would attract the British tourists and making some money from a new business venture in a different country but also taking advantage of the weather and mm, all of those and, things. and all those things as well so so basically if you the whole uh, concept of the exodus i think is a very mixed situation uh, i think that a lot of people are still returning to the uk because of the crisis uh, there has been uh, an increase in tourism over the last uh, couple of years but it's maybe not enough to keep supporting these people that made a business when uh, before the crisis hit there's still people leaving i know people that are leaving uh spain because of uh the crisis and yep. because they literally can't support themselves yeah so that's it we'll probably never get to the uh to the bottom of the um situation i'll get any uh type of conclusion but uh we'll see what happens over the next few months leading up to brexit and we'll see if the exodus does continue so, uh, John, I'll say thanks. We'll cut the, the podcast there short today. We'll be back next week, I think, right? Yeah, definitely. And we'll chat about something else. We'll see what's what pops up over the next week or so. I'm sure that there'll be more information coming uh, through about uh, Spain and Britain and all of those things that we need to talk about. Um, if you guys have got any questions that you'd like to ask us, just leave them in the comments section below. Give the video a thumbs up if you liked it. I'll say goodbye, John. Goodbye. Thanks for uh, popping in today. And uh, as I said, we'll see you again next week. Uh, to the viewers out there, like I said, give the video a thumbs up and we'll see you in the next podcast. And you can hear us in the next podcast, of course, if wherever you are watching this, whether it be on Facebook, YouTube, or on the webpage. Uh, hasta luego.